0: Hello and welcome to Design is Everywhere, the brand new weekly podcast from the Design Museum. It's Thursday, June 2nd, 2020. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano, founder and executive director, and I'm joined by your other host, the amazing Liz Pollack, our vice president. Hey, Liz. Hey, Sam. How is it June right now?
1: I, I honestly don't know.
0: just going to move past that. This week, we're talking about relationship-centered design, an interesting approach to designing while focusing on the relationships between people and organizations, not just the people themselves. But it's all about building truly genuine relationships by design. We have a great guest co-host, Mike Kirkpatrick. He's the senior VP of client experience and strategy at MadPow. He's also their financial services practice lead. We'll chat with him about what relationship-centered design is and how it all works particularly in financial services. Then Liz, Mike, and I will interview Russ Wilson, the Chief Experience Officer and Head of Design at Fidelity Investments. We'll chat about how this all works at scale in practice at a place like Fidelity. Plus, as always, we'll have our weekly dose of good design. Before we dive into all that, Liz, I know we shared that we have a very special event coming up this month. Can you share some more details?
1: Yeah, happy to. On June 20th, we are hosting a virtual event called Design Night Live. It's a fun playoff of Saturday Night Live. We'll have sketches, prizes, we'll be unveiling our first online exhibition, and we'll actually be live curating and voting on our next exhibition together. If anyone is interested in attending, all you have to do is become a member to get free access. And if you're already a member, you just have to refer a friend and you both will get to attend for free. So free event, Definitely worth going. All the information you need to know about the event and how to sign up is online. Just go to designnightlive.org and you can sign up today.
0: This is gonna be a lot of fun. I'm super excited to have our entire community involved in helping curate our next exhibition. We've never done this before. I've always wanted to, and we'll see. I mean, how cool is it to be part of creating an exhibition? Uh, So it's gonna be great to be together even if it's a digital space. Uh, So, oh, and I wanted to mention that the summer issue of Design Museum Magazine is out and should either be in our members' hands or coming very soon. We're super excited about this issue since we've sort of evolved Design Museum Magazine and we've just taken everything to the next level. The content, the print quality, I really think you're going to love it. The articles in this issue are great and I hope you enjoy. On to this week's main topic. This week we're talking about relationship-centered design. I think many of us have heard of human-centered design, which is all about placing real people at the center of the design work that we do. So we're always designing with empathy and thoughtfulness, but what if we could take that a step further and design with relationships in mind so that we're strengthening the bond between people or between people and organizations and build real loyalty. This is particularly interesting when we think about financial organizations and their customers many of whom are adversely affected by the current financial crisis. So instead of blindly selling services and products, these organizations can focus on where people are right now in the moment of their journey to develop a lifelong trusting relationship. You can imagine this has business impact as well as social impact for the customer, uh, as both the fates of the company and the customer are really intertwined. To talk about this relationship design, relationship center design and all its implications, uh, we have a special guest co-host, Mike Kirkpatrick is part of the leadership team at Madpow, a strategic design consultancy that leverages the psychology of motivation to create innovative experiences for a diverse collection of clients. Mike has a career in user experience design, but now leads the financial services practice at Madpow, helping steward transformation projects for Fortune 100 clients. Here's a clip of Mike speaking at MadPow's Financial Experience Design Conference.
2: The best experiences are a thoughtful blend of technology and humanity. And I think if we do a great job of truly designing how those come together, uh, that's a huge next opportunity. Sort of, everyone has phones now. Everyone understands digital. We have to get to kind of the next level. And this is where I believe uh, we're headed.
0: Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks. Great to be here. Yes. Let's dive in. Let's get into relationship-centered design, right? It's sort of a a new phrase, a new word, Um, but it's really intriguing, right? Because uh, you know, there's human-centered design. One of my friends, Joey Zeladon, over the weekend he published a post and it asked, uh, "Is human is human-centered design selfish?" And it got me thinking about the topic today, um, because this could kind of be the next evolution. So can you explain a little bit about what relationship centered design means like in your practice? And then maybe some of the differences between that and human centered design, if any?
2: Yeah, it's uh it's a it's always interesting because, you know, human centered design, watching the arc of that over the years has been uh, awesome. You know, human centered design used to be something you have to sell. Right. And now it's much more an accepted practice and it, it's a best practice for uh, for delivering experiences, which is what we do at MadPaw, and um, relationship-centered design is sort of uh, the next level. And I th- I feel like human-centered design continues to evolve. Uh, we're seeing that practice incorporate um, facets of uh, psychology. So there was a time where you know and I focus on financial services, which can tend to be very transactional, and when you have a transactional relationship with customers. Uh, even when you've committed to a human centered uh, approach, uh, you may uh, limit the opportunity if you're only looking at a that transactional view. Uh, we work with uh, a lot of customers that have uh, multi product uh, relationships with customers so they might sell insurance products plus banking uh, you know savings vehicles investments and by having a more relationship-centered approach to that, uh, to, to what they, how they approach those customers, uh, they can uh, be even more human-centered in how they interact with them on a regular basis. So truly listening and understanding the context of the situation, what their customers are going through, and how it fits into maybe a bigger picture, maybe where they are within their stage of life you know
1: yeah i was just gonna say um could you give us some examples or other examples of you know case studies of products or services um where you know relationship design centered design um is kind of present and thinking about um, not just financial services but you know across the board just trying to understand really what what it is?
2: Yeah, sure. You know, stepping outside of financial services, I mean, th- I think healthcare, especially these days, with uh, the the context we're all living in, uh, healthcare companies, um, which range from providers. You've got hospitals, you've got physicians, you've got health insurance players, and uh, it's a really complex uh, business context to work within, especially when you're trying to design great experiences and be very human centered or patient centered. And um, so some examples within that domain uh, might be within the caregiver space where a relationship means not only caretaking of the patient, but also considering their family. Often uh, the family has a lot of uh, skin in the game and a lot of at stake in those um, uh, interactions. And if you purely designed, if you purely use human-centered design and only focused on uh, the patient, you'd miss a lot of very important aspects around their family and um, and uh, and the considerations there. So that's we work in, in both healthcare and financial services have a lot in common, but they also have some key points of departure, and I think that's one key point of departure there uh, within healthcare.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what strikes me about this whole concept, right, is, again, being trained as a designer at a time when human-centered design was, like, the thing, like you said, is, yeah, we did think about all, like, the different stakeholders that might be, you know, affected by this new product or service, but I'm not sure we ever really were like, okay, well, those two people are going to connect, and those four people are going to connect and what does that experience look like? It's almost like instead of like a hub and spoke of like our service at the center, and you know each individual person, it's sort of like a network and how this all like orchestrates or choreographed, so to speak, uh, which is really fascinating as a, as a way to think about design.
2: If you're designing for relationship, what's interesting, I suppose, is that you're not designing for transaction anymore. So, you may consider things in a transaction that need to be different because. you want to interact to honor the relationship. And I think if companies recognize that and make adjustments um, and have that longer view, that's honestly where a lot of the behavior is flowing, especially with uh, younger millennials that search to work with companies that they admire uh, and that they can have relationship with uh, when they think about brands, they're thinking about companies that embody an ethos they buy into. And and so the companies that are understanding that may be willing to take a a short term miss for a long term gain. Uh, We work, I can't name who, but we work with a financial services company is very large, and they have uh, multiple products that they offer. And I have been in the room when they have literally decided to do something better for the relationship uh, than it is for the short term, like for the fiscal year, for example. And that and their loyalty numbers are uh, 90 plus percent uh, every year, and everybody's trying to figure out what the secret is. And in some ways, it is a, a relationship-based thinking.
1: Yeah. So it kind of touches back on what Sam was saying about like in human centered design, you probably start by talking to the stakeholders. What is the process with when you focus on relationship centered design and is it different? I,
2: I think it's very similar. I think it's like I said, I think of it as more an extension of human centered design principles. Uh, what it may entail is taking a look at um, the customer journey uh, beyond just a product-based view, which often clients will, if you think about it, uh, clients that are in our world trying to solve a problem typically live within a part of the organization and are funded by a part of the organization. So they have a very product-centered view of the problem space. And so what we like to do is try to expand that to take a look at, at a just a, maybe a wider spectrum um, Beyond just that single product interaction, what is the life of the uh, the customer? What is that relationship product to product? What ha- what changes over time? So I don't think it's um, I, I think of it as an extension of human centered design more so than a completely new methodology.
0: Yeah, one thing that I've been thinking about uh, related to this is also equity and how you know there were some stories in the news about you know the PPP the payment protection program and how you had to have an existing relationship <laughs> with a banker to actually get into it. And so that let you know, left a lot of, you know, women and myor- minority owned businesses kind of out in the cold. I wonder if, you know, this is jumping back to financial services, but if we're talking data, if we're talking about relationship design in the past, you may have had like a physical, real human relationship with your banker. And I wonder if this is a way to sort of design that relationship for more people who haven't had access.
2: Yeah, certainly. If you're referring Sam to the fact that you know technology and and it's it's been really amplified through this COVID crisis, technology has allowed us to have relationships in a much different way, we can reach way more people than we ever could. And Mm -hmm. relationships used to be, if you use that word. the connotation was certainly human to human. It was right. something where we're in the same place, maybe talking about uh, my banking needs. And I've been encouraged, you know, it's funny, it's been tough we've all been uh, at home and, you know, we all have different shades of, of tough mm-hmm. and, um, and um, some of us more fortunate than others through this uh, crisis. I have been extremely encouraged by the silver lining that is accelerating a lot of this uh, relationship building, and uh, I, you know, companies that are finding ways to be creative about uh, interactions with customers through mm-hmm. this crisis has been pretty awesome. Uh, we we have a client that put a new product related to the PPP program. They put that out in uh, in the world within seven days, uh, which for them. Wow. Is unheard of. If you if you said <laughs> if you said they had to do that before the crisis, they would have said, "You, we can't
0: do it. That we can never do that." And, and I would be emailing for seven days about right. when to meet meetings. Yes, <laughs>
2: right. So you know, uh, yeah, I, I do think you know technology and certainly this experiment that has us all on Zoom, including us right now, um, maybe will promote uh, new styles of interaction that lead to deeper relationships with companies that. Uh, used to really rely on that
0: uh, Mm face-to-face. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you so much, Mike. This was awesome. Sure. Listeners, be sure to check out the amazing work Mike and the team at MadPow are doing in this space. Visit madpow.com. MadPow is planning another Financial Experience Design Conference on October 21st and 22nd. And so you can learn more about that at financialexperiencedesign.com. Mike, stay with us. We're going to continue this conversation and bring in Russ Wilson. He's the Chief Experience Officer and Head of Design at Fidelity Investments.
1: Design is Everywhere is brought to you by members like you. Every member receives Design Museum magazine, our must have quarterly print and digital publication about design impact.
0: It's how we can bring the Design Museum directly to your door. You don't even have to leave the house. It'll come to you. Each issue contains stories from creative thought leaders on how they're using design to change the world.
1: Yeah, some past stories include Turning the Inside Out, The Workplace Meets Mother Nature by Lee Stringer, and interviews with design leaders like Kat Holmes, Senior VP of Design and UX at Salesforce.
0: Design Museum Magazine is design inspiration you can hold in your hands. Visit designmuseummagazine.org to subscribe today for just $3 per month.
1: That's $3 per month that we bring the world of design to your doorstep. Check it out at designmuseummagazine.org today.
0: And we're back and we're joined by a special guest. Russ Wilson is the chief experience officer and head of design at Fidelity Investments. He's a user experience and product executive with 20 years of experience designing and developing successful software and experiences. Before Fidelity, Russ was a design leader at IBM, Google, and Microsoft. Russ, it's great to have you. Thanks for coming on the show.
3: Awesome, awesome, great to be here.
0: Yeah, so to start, you know, for our listeners who probably know what a CEO is and what a CFO is, maybe even what a COO is, it's always amazing to me to see designers and creative people in the C-suite. Can you tell our listeners, uh, what your role is as the, I think, what's CXO. CXO,
3: yeah. And, and there was, uh, to to that point, there was some discussion over whether it was a CXO or CDO, right? Right. You'll see right. both terms these days. Um, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, I, you know, I'm responsible for reimagining and and really designing a great digital experience across all of our channels for Fidelity. And that's going to involve a lot of hands-on you know interaction and uh, collaboration with the CEO on down. And when you have that kind of support, the the job uh, the job can be a lot of fun. It's a lot of pressure, there's a lot of accountability. Um, there's a lot of business discussions, right around the impact of design and why are we investing this and why are we doing that? Um, but but I think uh, I think it's, um, I think it's a great opportunity to really, really, you know, drive design at the highest levels.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I, I'm thinking we're pretty lucky today. We have two designers who are also in the business world. So I can't think of a, a better pairing.
1: For our listeners, could you tell us what the D and the X are? <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish I knew.
3: Um, no, no, it's uh, so, so <laughs> you'll see in some cases people refer to themselves as, as chief design officer or chief experience officer. Um, and I actually had a debate with somebody recently who I won't name over which is the better term. Uh, you know, at fidelity, honestly, our formal my formal title is head of design, mm-hmm. um, and and so yeah, everything else is just a fudge.
1: Yeah, I feel like so many people assume there is absolutely no connection between design and finance. <laughs> And so the fact that your job exists at all is a statement to, that it does, but I'd love to hear your thoughts just on why is it important to have your role in finance and um, to some so many people that there's no connection? So
3: so you mean in the financial industry? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think, you know, the world is evolving, right? And money, money is probably one of the most, you know, Things we're most sensitive about, you know, our health and our and our money, and I think for the longest time it was very difficult to, um, you know, for people to trust digital platforms, digital technologies, uh, putting you know their financial information online, and as such, a lot of companies like Fidelity have had a responsibility to, you know, maintain that trust and and you know to ensure their customers that uh, their money was safe, uh, and so. You know, I think it's one of those industries that hasn't quite been able to adopt cutting edge or leading edge as soon as some of the others, but is now seeing that as a huge strategic advantage going forward and seeing the world shifting. Right. A lot of um, a lot of our, our younger uh, demographic is much more comfortable with digital tools to to, you know, pay for things, to manage their money, to set up goals, to, you know. Do, do all those things so so I think it's just a, a big shift uh, across the board that's really driving it
2: what do you see I guess what was attractive to you in moving over to fidelity and in terms of what the opportunity is I, I know for me as a design thinker I get excited about the potential it,
3: there were so many factors you know one of the first things that I look at when I talk to companies is leadership and I was blown away by the leadership you know the, the truth is I, I've been on the west coast. And when you talk about companies like Fidelity, you don't. A lot of people don't necessarily know a lot about them. And on top of that, Fidelity's private, so it's even more mysterious in some ways, right? People don't really understand the inner workings. And so you know you're kind of curious, but you're wondering, you know, is is this just a, a old, stodgy finance company or four hundred and one k company? And then you start meeting some of the people, and you're blown away. And and I was. And that commitment from the CEO down to innovate and to do great design um, in a business context, right, with with real you know business objectives and business outcomes, but to push that innovation envelope was was real. It wasn't just lip service, you know, because a lot of companies say, yeah, they're going to innovate, we you know we innovate, you know, but but really seeing it happen at Fidelity and having that top down support to do bigger things, right, to to really change the game was was very attractive.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, today we're talking about relationship-centered design. And, you know, how does that approach play into the design work at Fidelity?
3: For me, it, it, to build a relationship, you've got to have trust. Uh, you know, it starts with trust. And how do you get to trust? Well, I think ultimately it's about transparency, right? That's that's one huge factor. Um, and what I mean by transparency is that, you know, I think we all just need to be honest, right? We do have a business, we have to make money. I'm not gonna tell you that everything I do is just for you. You know, uh, you won't believe me anyway, right? <laughs> I mean, we all assume anytime I show you anything for for you know most of the things you see on the web, you're assuming there's something, there's some catch, there's something in it. So why not just be authentic? Why not just say, look, we make money this way, but we're gonna do something really great for you in the process. And that's a win-win, you know, scenario. And so I, I think just being transparent and, and authentic is key. I think empathy is really important. You know, it's it's easy to um, see the world through our own eyes and not realize what someone else is going through. There's a lot of, you know, kind of standard uh, financial advice, kind of boilerplate financial advice you might give. And the truth is it doesn't apply to everyone. And then finally, I think exceeding expectations, mm-hmm. uh, you know, where we can a go above and beyond, you know, doing things like proactively uh, acting on our customer's behalf, you know, um, I think goes a long way in in, in building loyalty and in, in relationships.
0: Yeah, I always think about the classic design word, the delight. And the more you can delight, right, the more loyalty, because I just want that feeling. It's like a drug. Keep delighting me, please. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> delight me constantly and that you yeah. will have me for life. Um, exactly. So, yeah, when we were chatting about this earlier with, with Mike, you know, he was chatting about um, or talking about the journey that people are on in their life, right? They might have a bank account in high school and then they go to college. And so I'm curious if there's any like specific products or services that you could talk about at Fidelity that were sort of designed to have this relationship that sort of e- evolves over time.
3: That that's part of where we're moving. That that's part of our digital journey. I don't know if you've used Greenlight. I I use it with my daughters. It's it's phenomenally easy to um, manage a, a credit card for for all three of my daughters. Um, yeah. And and that's a way to start getting that brand recognition and that trust built throughout their lifetimes. And so we're really starting to look more at where we can help. Uh, you know help. You know younger demographics, people in different financial situations uh, along that entire path
0: mhm-, yeah, I'm thinking about now, right, when we're in the middle of a, a pandemic and a financial crisis um, you know that's hitting people in different ways. I've seen some companies are like just pretending like this isn't happening and they're just like selling the same way, which again people probably interpret it differently. I interpret it sort of as a little bit tone deaf um and then there's companies and organizations and their advertising and how they're communicating is sort of like, here's where we are, we're here together. Um, And so I wonder if you could talk about, you know, how this approach sort of changes when people don't have a lot of money and maybe that relationship is about kind of lifting them out of this kind of collaboratively maybe.
3: Yeah. I mean that, that really goes back to empathy and, and, you know, um, Understanding that there are situations now where traditional financial advice may not apply, right? Um, people need liquid cash. They need liquid assets. Um, some, in some cases, they have to, you know, make draws on 401ks, you know, and things like that. And whereas you might typically say, "Well, that's not really a good idea," you have to kind of meet them where they are and and support those decisions right now, and not not make them feel bad about it either. Right, a lot of people don't have that choice at this point. Um, so I think uh, I think you know we're we're trying to we we've made a lot of effort to work around the clock to to really be there for our customers and to reach out and and to have that perspective. You know, um, you know I, I I can tell you shortly after the uh, the the pandemic started to really take a hold. You know, we were working on weekends and evenings. Um, you know reaching out to customers trying to modify things or some of our digital assets like you said not mm-hmm. to be tone deaf uh you know it's 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 important it's a different it's a different time people are thinking totally different than they were 4 months ago
0: yeah totally yeah and you can almost tell and maybe that's it There's some of these like campaigns and messaging were just like in the can and it just like we're like just go but others were like we are pivoting and we're going to work our butts off to be relevant to this time and i I I could tell the difference. I don't know how many people are picking up on it, but it's the companies that are responding to the moment that I think. um, I saw, saw
3: uh, to that point, I saw a deodorant commercial last night and the entire commercial were images of people working out in their homes. Excellent. Right, yeah. and, and so they were doing cartwheels over sofas and, you know, doing pull-ups in their doorways. And then it was a deodorant commercial. It's like,
0: okay, I, I guess they've adjusted, right? Actually, thinking about that strategy, like we were talking about this in terms of fidelity. Um, and, you know, I know, Mike, also you talked about MadPow working with a lot of like Fortune 100 companies. But for all the small businesses and entrepreneurs that, you know, might be listening, how can they sort of apply let's open it up, human-centered design or, or relationship-centered design to their work, especially at a time when, you know, I mean, small businesses are the lifeblood of this country. How do we use design to to bolster what they're doing?
3: You mean if they don't have a 50-person research team? Yeah, you got it, yeah. Three, <laughs> yeah, okay.
0: three 50-person research teams, a design team. Um, yeah.
3: Um, so, I, look, I, I think a lot can be said for just rolling up your sleeves you know, with a small cross-functional team and in working directly with customers, right? I mean, uh, I, I feel like some of the best work I've personally done in the past has been in that scenario. You know, observing users using things. Yes, it's true, users won't tell us what they, what they necessarily need because they don't understand, you know, what's possible in all cases, but they can certainly help you, you know, design a great solution, especially in cases where you know uh, they're a domain expert and you're trying to develop your domain expertise but you know we've done some phenomenal work in the past with a with a five-person team you know a designer a a researcher some developers a product manager it's it's kind of a
2: fundamental unit
3: that can really go very
2: far
0: Mm -hmm. I, i think if
2: i would add to that yeah i think russ is exactly right i think it comes down to iteration right so uh, I, unfortunately, you know, a lot of the smaller businesses might think of it as a one and done exercise or something that's uh, revisited occasionally in experience strategy, um, where it's really something that you can do with a very small team, it can be done very well with a very small team, and then iterated upon over and over. And I think it's it's not only understanding How, you know, I I find that the smaller and less sophisticated our clients are, they tend to, I'll say it again, have a very product centric view of the world. So when they go into some of those research exercises, they're sort of trying to prove the product's place in, in the scenario. And the reality is, is start by just paying attention and listening and understanding people's motivations and the problems they're trying to solve. And you'll get a lot out of that. That may actually lead to entirely new product ideas um, that you, you you could never have discovered any other way. Uh, you know, insurance companies sell insurance products, and you hope to never use them. And when you do use them, man, that's a bummer, right? right. It's a claim that you got to call in for. Usually, it's not a good. You don't feel great about it, uh, almost all all the time. Um, And many insurance companies, the way um, the economics works is that the person you're working with is actually incented to not pay that claim and to drive that claim down. And an innovative little insurance company startup called Lemonade came in and said, nope, that's not working because that's inhibiting our uh, relationship here with the customer. So they actually retooled the product. So that they could have those claims adjusters not be incented. It's uh, they're they're incented to help you, and so that's you know you talked about small and medium sized businesses. Uh, I think that's where you have the opportunity to challenge
0: mm-hmm.
2: how it works today. Whereas I think some of the larger companies actually are more challenged right. in making substantial changes of that nature.
0: Yeah, they're sort of locked in. Um, yeah, I mean it's just it always strikes me sort of at the end of the day here. We, we talked to a lot of companies, Liz and I, as we're out around with the museum. And I think about this stuff all day. And I'm like, you know, well, did you chat with your customer? Did you talk to your user? And I get no's still all the yeah. time. And I think all four of us, you know, on this episode are like, that is insane. But it seems so obvious, doesn't it? Yeah, it seems so obvious to us, but it's just not happening even. It,
3: it blows my mind when I encounter design orgs or designers who have never met with a customer. Yeah. Right? And, and I encounter it all the time. And, and I'm really glad Mike made that point about evolving through experiments. That, that is absolutely our approach that, that I've that I've added, which is this kind of, you know, build to learn model. It's um, we, we don't know what we don't know. That, that's the whole idea behind an experience strategy. And, and the fact that I'm doubling down on the fact that it's a hypothesis. Right. right. It's I, I don't know if it's going to work. We, we've got to get it out there and try it. And if it works, great. Um, then then maybe it's a little more solid. Otherwise, we need to evolve it or pivot.
1: Yeah, totally. So yeah, along these same lines, I have a question again for both of you. Um, What's your advice to designers and design thinkers on how to shift their practice from thinking solely about users and stakeholders to thinking about the relationships between people, relationships to organizations, maybe even the relationships to technology?
2: I I think I I keep coming back to the fact that um, you already know how to do it it's just a matter of shifting your perspective a bit here. So it is a version of uh, the same kind of thinking you're applying uh, with human-centered design, but you're widening your scope. So I would suggest, you know, we just talked about research and spending time with uh, the user audience that uh, is your design target. I think that's certainly a place to, um, to focus and spend time, but spend time learning more about, um, the situations and scenarios, uh, not just the narrow focus of the product design or the product that you're delivering, or the transaction or the or the service you're delivering. So widen your scope, um, codify that. You know we do that with things like journey maps or service blueprints that help codify uh, that scope, and that becomes a great basis for uh, doing some collaborative design with users. That's where you can bring them into the process and really get to under, understand, um, all the emotions that apply and the various, uh, nuances of, of all the scenarios that are, are, are part of that relationship.
3: Yeah. I God, there's so much like I am. Um, well, for example, uh, I've been really hard on dark patterns, right? I, I can't stand dark patterns. I to me, if, uh, if you have to implement a dark pattern,
1: so wait, uh, I don't, I don't know what a dark pattern is.
3: Oh, okay. Here we go. So, a, d- a dark pattern, and and Mike elaborate if you if you think I'm not hitting it dead on, but but to me, a dark pattern is a design that kind of manipulates the user to do something right for your benefit. Gotcha. Um, so, for example, uh, maybe a broad one is it's easy to sign up for a subscription but hard to cancel it. That's a dark pattern right? Um, and I feel like companies that rely on dark patterns need to look at their business model. Because if that's how you, if that's the thing you need to do to to drive your business, you've got, you've got problems, right? Mm-hmm. And you're never, ever going to build a sustaining company over time, ever. Um, it, it will catch up with you. So I, I think that's a massive thing that people have to really push back on. And I've you know, I've encountered designers in my orgs before. They've come to me and said, Well, the, the product owner, the product manager is really pushing for this. They've got a KPI, they've got to hit. And so they want, you know, they want it to automatically pick the most expensive option and just move the user to the next screen, you know? Right. And and uh, I think as designers, as representing users, but at the same time as walking that fine line between the business, you know, and, and the optimal user experience. I think we have to push back on those things and find better solutions.
0: Mm, uh, absolutely.
2: Yeah, so good. That is a challenge. Man,
1: I hate them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> you'll Maybe start the
0: seeing worst. them everywhere. Yeah.
2: yeah.
0: yeah.
1: I, I'm already, like, they're already coming to mind. Yeah. I know exactly what they are, which I'm not going to name here, but. We need yeah, to switch uh, our,
0: our, last segment has to be switched to weekly dose of bad design. <laughs> <laughs> There's dark patterns. patterns. Yeah. Dark patterns. With Sam and Liz. Yeah. Oh man. Oh. Thank you both. And thank you so much for joining us, Russ. This was great. Awesome, yeah, thank you so much. We've been chatting with Russ Wilson, head of design and chief experience officer, CXO at Fidelity Investments. Visit fidelity.com for planning and advice. They also have a really great COVID-19 resource center with frequently asked questions and info and updates about the CARES Act. Now for our weekly dose of good design, where we share an example of good design that impacted us or others in a meaningful way. I'll start us off this week. My weekly dose comes from Crayola, the crayon company. Uh, And man, this is a long time coming. So they just announced that in July, they're launching a new pack of crayons called Colors of the World. And the launch will coincide with the United Nations World Day for Cultural Diversity. So the pack uh, will contain new colors that represent more than 40 skin tones from around the world. So awesome. The the colors were created in partnership with Victor Casal. He's the CEO of Mob Beauty, which is a sustainable makeup brand. And it's just so interesting because the alignment here, they're known for creating foundation colors uh, for many skin tones. And so it's just wonderful that now any kid around the world can draw with crayons and you know, they have the tools to represent themselves and their families. Uh, And so this made me smile and made me really happy this week. Liz, why don't you go next?
1: Great, yeah. So this week, mine is very simple, uh, but oftentimes that's true of great design. So I decided I'm going for it. Um, As I think everyone knows at this point, my husband and I have a two and a half and a four and a half year old home with us right now and keeping them entertained, getting our work done and keeping our house clean. Um, I would say it's nearly impossible at the moment. And uh, it does make me really appreciative of these Eboo puzzles that we have. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, But they're beautiful and they're well made and they're age appropriate. Uh, And my favorite feature, uh, because at any given moment in our house, we have about five of these out at a given, you know, time. So it's a lot of puzzles and a lot of puzzle pieces, but the back of them, each puzzle has their own unique pattern. And so it means that when you find the puzzle piece under the rug or under the couch or wherever it may be, you can quickly go and put it back to the right puzzle. And, you know, like I said, it's very simple, but it's a real game changer for us.
0: All right. Last but not least, Mike. Sure.
2: Yeah. And and hopefully this is in keeping with the tradition of the segment here, but, um, you know, through this, you know, uh, COVID crisis and, and in the, you know, the turn of the nice weather here in the, in the Northeast, I tend to do a lot of work around the yard and a lot of home improvement stuff. And a lot of people, I think, you know, are starting to come out of the woodwork to do, uh, woodworking and, um, I have been really impressed with uh, Home Depot, believe it or not, and their response. So they needed to design an entirely new service, uh, this idea of ordering things on the website and then driving up to a parking spot and having somebody come in and load it to your car and to do all that very, very safely. And... um, i I'm uh, uh, you know so i did i did actually interact with that recently nice. I needed to get some some uh storage units for the basement we're cleaning up the basement. It's funny when you're home you know you know, oh, yeah.
0: projects right
2: so it's been uh you know very incredible i drove you know i ordered online I drove into the parking lot the signage was all up as to where to go and uh, the traffic flow was really nicely managed. I was more impressed that they basically uh, put up an entirely new service uh, in such a short period of time and it worked. Yeah. And it, it's it, it's a good, it's going to have a lot of stories that I think I'm going to be using within client scenarios of what we can actually do mm-hmm. if we uh, put our mind to it because it, it worked great for me. It was very easy. And I l- remember leaving the parking lot thinking we should just do this all the time. I love the way that works. I don't need to go in the store, but mm-hmm. I love the, I'll drive here, I'll pick it up. So I'm sure it's going to be the advent of a lot of uh, continued uh, service in that same spirit, even after this crisis is over. But it was yeah, uh, a cool. moment of delight, to your point. Right, so. I was
0: gonna say again, like that moment, you're probably like, yeah, I'm gonna do this again. Like maybe we yeah. like, maybe we think too hard. Delight your customers, treat them well, and whoa, amazing relationships are built. Like. Right. You know, I guess how you get there is, is interesting, but that's really cool. I'll have to I'll have to go check that out.
1: There's so many of those services that are popping up, right? Like with telehealth mm-hmm. and, you know, that's how we have our kids see the doctor now. And it's been awesome. And there's there's um what was the other one? Oh, I finally did grocery shopping like delivery. Mm-hmm. Like, why am I ever oh, going yeah. grocery shopping again? Yeah. Like, I think I'll save money because I'm not just walking through the aisles and being like, sure, I'll I'm add here. that in. And yep. I might, you know what, I might want to eat it this week. Yeah, I think it's going to be this pivotal time in our life for these new services. Maybe they're not exactly new, but some are. Um, new to people. changing I mean, our lives. Yeah,
0: those have been out, but, you know, we didn't do it a lot. You know, it's like, but now it's like, yeah, I'm never going to the grocery store ever again.
2: <laughs> well, how about a return to you talk about health care? You know, I, I was very sick early this year and I have not been tested to see if it was the, the dreaded virus. But um, I wasn't feeling well and I went and got tested for the flu. I went to the urgent care center. And while I was there, I thought I'm going to get sick by being here. And sure enough, I got much worse. Mm-hmm. And
3: mm-hmm. it was Ugh.
2: very short lived. But how about this idea that the doctor used to drive out? They used to make house calls. And this Mm -hmm. distributed system is uh, much more in vogue right now. And I think people would welcome those kinds of things. Um, Maybe things that used to exist a certain way. Other things that are new because they had to exist for this time period. But it's really intriguing.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you both. Mike and Liz are really cool weekly doses of good design. Thank you again to Mike Kirkpatrick and Russ Wilson for joining us this week. You'll find links on our show page to some of the resources we talked about this week. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org.
1: Yes, and while you're there, make sure to become a member, or if you're already a member, to refer a member so that you and a friend can join us for Design Night Live. It's gonna be our biggest virtual event yet, We'll be giving away prizes, unveiling our first online exhibition, and doing some fun design sketches and live curating our next exhibition.
0: It's gonna be super fun. I can't wait. It's gonna be all the virtual fun in one night, a Saturday night with Design Museum. We can continue the conversation online. Like us, follow us. On Twitter, we're at design underscore museum. On Instagram, we're at design museum everywhere. And on Facebook and LinkedIn, you can find us by searching design museum everywhere.
1: Remember to subscribe to Design Is Everywhere on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your podcasts and rate us and leave a review that really helps people find the new show.
0: Yes, please. This episode was written and edited by me, Sam Aquilano, and produced by Ryan Flom. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For Liz Pollack and the entire team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thank you and we'll talk to you again next week. Bye, everyone.